Let's turn in our Bibles uh, to Jeremiah chapter 15, Sunday, Sunday evenings, going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we uh, made our way partway through chapter 15 last time. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, please just wave at one of the men that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll give you one. It'll be marked to our passage tonight, which will be helpful. You'll be fairly lost without a Bible this evening. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you um, tonight. I think that, you know, certainly even as we're in this place of, of Jeremiah chapter 15, uh, we, we certainly see uh, the repetition of the message, a call to repentance and repentance from idolatry, disobedience, and so forth, that is, uh, Jeremiah is proclaiming to the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's never a good, uh, it's never a bad thing to have that message. I don't know, maybe you're a little bit purer than I am. Um, a call to repent on a weekly basis is not something that's unwelcome to me. Uh, I like to have the word search me in that way. But as you read the, uh, the book of Jeremiah and as we study it together, realize there's a couple of different ways to be receiving the message. Number one, to receive that message of uh, repentance if I am living in disobedience and idolatry. But number two, uh, almost as valuable is the fact that the book of Jeremiah is a study of Jeremiah himself and kind of all of the ups and downs that he goes through, going through in his service to the Lord. And it was a rough call that God had uh, upon his life. Again, we remember that he was forced to, uh, or called really to prophesy for the Lord uh, through the waning decades of the death of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so uh, I don't know where we are in terms of the United States and so forth. Maybe we see a little bit of uptick in morality here recently. I'm glad for everything that we do get to see, but it is, it's good to view it from the aspect of a, a, a study, a character study as well. Uh, chapter 15, verse 15. Jeremiah speaks to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. So he is being persecuted all of the time. It's relentless. And so he asks for the Lord to defend him. In your enduring patience, uh, do not take me away. Protect me from the persecution I am uh, facing. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Lord, I'm getting hammered uh, simply for obeying your call upon my life, and I need you to protect me uh, in that calling. I think all of us understand something about that. Your words, he said, were found, and I ate them, talking about early in his prophetic ministry. God gave him those prophecies, his first experience with it. It was a very good uh, experience. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. What a wonderful thing to speak for God at any time uh, in history and through his word. And so he uh, enjoyed that, uh, you know, kind of the uh, mountaintop experience of all of that at the beginning, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, uh, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, and you have filled me with indignation. Jeremiah's life was a very lonely life because of his faithfulness to God. The nation as a whole we're not talking about the Philistines. We're not talking about the Ammonites or the, uh, any of the rest of them. We're talking about God's people. He is making a stand for God among God's people, and it is God's people who are ostracizing him for doing that. And if you haven't felt that in your family yet, it's in your future. And Jeremiah understood that uh, and, uh, to, to make that stand, and, and uh, it was because of this. He had no desire to be 
you know, the butt of the jokes or the, or the family uh, gossip. He wanted to be accepted at school as much as anyone else or in the workplace or anywhere else in life. But because of his faithfulness to God, uh, he was, you know, uh, uh, ostracized. For you have filled me, he said, with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? which refuses to be healed. This gives us an indication of this is a a sensitive man. This is a gentle uh, man. And to uh, endure the level of rejection that he was enduring, very, very hard for him. And then he cried out to the Lord, will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? What he's communicating to God is this. God, everybody's through with me. And you remember, I mean, his own hometown is plotting his death. His own family was in on the plot. Now, it doesn't get much worse than that. And so here he is in this kind of a place that he's in, rejected, ostracized the way uh, that he is, and he feels the vulnerability of it, not just the pain of it, but the vulnerability of it. And basically he says to God, God, if you're not on my side, if you are not looking out for me, and if you're not going to look out for me, then I don't know that I'm going to be able to make this. Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fall? And he's basically saying, God, I'm wondering if you're going to fail me as a spiritual and, and, and strengthening source in the middle of the trial uh, that I'm in, and I want you to give me confirmation that while everybody else has failed me now, that you will not fail me. And any of us who've ever been in a trial or in a situation, whether it's, in a, again, in a school or a workplace or in a family or whatever it might be, where you are all alone, can sometimes be in a court case or whatever, you are all alone, you have no one else to even try and lean on for strength or compassion or understanding. All you have is God. And this is the kind of conversation that people have with God when we're in that kind of a place. Lord, you are all I have, and if you fail me, I don't know what I'm going to do. Are you going to fail me? And so there's real honesty here in his uh, talking uh, with the Lord. And the Lord has a uh, response to, to him that begins in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord. And this is very fascinating. He said, if you, God says to Jeremiah, if you return, then I will bring you back. And the idea is he's confronting Jeremiah with Jeremiah saying, God, um, uh, I'm not sure that you're going to take care of me in this situation. I depend completely upon you. I'm wondering about that. I need reassurance of that. And God speaks to Jeremiah and says, if you return, then I will bring you back. And the idea that he is saying to Jeremiah is that Jeremiah needed to repent of even the thought that God would fail him. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because I'm not going to talk about everything else you've said here. I'll get to that. But where we're going to start and get straightened out right now is that you need to repent of ever thinking that I am ever going to fail you in my call upon your life. It's not going to happen. Now, we know why Jeremiah said it, and we know why we've been tempted to say it and have even said it in our Christian life when we're kind of at the end of our rope. It looks like God is failing us. It looks like everybody else has gone away from us, and then it looks like God isn't showing up in a strong way for us at the moment, and so we make this complaint like Jeremiah does. But what we have to remember is it is one context in which we say that to God from the context of our trial, the context of the earth, but it's an entirely different context that God hears it in. 
I mean, this is God. You're talking about heaven. We're talking about a heaven that Paul said, I won't even try to describe what I heard up there, let alone what I saw up there. John, the one who laid his head back on Jesus' bosom while they're eating the meal on the night before his crucifixion, that kind of familiarity with Jesus, and he sees Jesus in the revelation, whether even taken up into heaven or by means of a vision, and he falls down like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. I mean, the awe of, of the heavenly scene. And when the Lord looks at that, whatever we may be feeling, God looks at it and says, that cannot happen. It simply can't happen. And in fact, if you want to know how much it can't happen, how impossible it is for me to fail you or one of my promises uh, to you, he says, I, I, then I, th- that, I want you to repent of that attitude. It simply can't happen. And maybe that's a word for one of us here tonight and that very place that Jeremiah finds himself in. We look at it and think, yes, the promise might fail. God looks at it and says, there is no chance that a, a single one of my promises will ever fail you. And the very thought requires repentance on my part. Now, I've been in lots of places in life, just like you have, and in my Christian life too, and things look pretty iffy for a while. And, uh, you know, my prayer goes like, Lord, you know, you remember me, Damien, and, uh, um, and, and listen, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I don't need to go down in, in history as a famous person or anything, but I sure I sure hate what I think I'm seeing happen here and that my life is going to go down in history as the first life um, that uh, uh, you broke one of your promises to in the midst of the trial so bad. And then what happens? It looks like we're not going to survive it. And then time goes on, time goes on, and time goes on. And God keeps his promise, not in the way that we thought he would, not in the way that we thought would be the best way for him to do it. But when we finally see it, we realize this is so outrageously better than what I could have ever planned. Not that I got richer or I got a Mercedes Benz out of it or something like that, um, or got some Botox treatments or something, just trying to be relevant. Listen, what can I do? I, I read about it all the time, and so huh? not very good, was it? Now I've lost my entire train of thought related to that. That's what Botox does to me. They, they, the injections were a little bit too close right in here on Thursday. I won't... Okay. That's... Uh, but so it isn't that he keeps the promise and we end up, you know, richer in some way for it materially. But we end up learning things about God and about ourselves and about his word and his promises that we wouldn't know otherwise. It's fascinating how he takes, you would think that uh, God would just say to Jeremiah, okay, group hug, come on, come on. You got your dauber down a little bit here. We can't put up with that. Come get a hug from daddy. And there are times that he does that. And, uh, but here, you know, sometimes he can just come in and go, no, I, that's dangerous for you. That's dangerous for my plans for your life. And I'm going to catch you on it right now, and I'm going to ask you to repent of ever thinking I could fail you uh, when you're in the middle of my plan for your life. And then he goes on to say, and if you take out the precious from the vial, and this is the idea of take the, um, the doubt that you're expressing here, uh, take that out of your life so that the message that you give is one of faith and not unbelief. It's grabbing a hold of you here a little bit. Then you shall be as my mouth. I'll continue to use you as my prophet. Uh, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. So this is, uh, I mean, all this is real. So you, you, we find ourselves in the kind of trials where they are so hard, they are so painful, they involve relationships in the body of Christ, they re- involve relationships in family, they re- involve relationships that are important to us in our life. And the separation that has occurred 
between us and them is on the basis of being faithful to the Word of God. It is because I am being faithful to the Word of God on this issue, and either they are not as an individual or they are not as a group willing to do that, and so I am then uh, ostracized uh, as a result of it. And the great temptation is to think, I'm being too much of a stickler here. It's obvious that Christianity has moved on from an absolute obedience to God's Word, and we're in a, more of a, a fuzzy zone now in human history where, you know, you can compromise uh, when you want or obey when you want and so forth. And there is this enormous pressure uh, when what is happening with Judah, there is an apostasy spiritually among the people of Judah. When that happens in the body of Christ in the world or within a nation, then you feel like the nutcase. You feel like you're insane, you're sane, insane, and everyone else is sane. And am I making too big of a deal of obeying God, His commandments, and the raising of my children, and the, how I conduct myself in business, and so forth? And that pressure begins to bear upon our own heart that, okay, I just got to loosen up, and I got to go with what this thing is like. And the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and says to him, you must, uh, he said, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And this is, in God is t saying to Jeremiah, you hold. You hold. Don't you back down. You make them come to you. And if they do come to you, and when they come to you, that's out of your control. I'm not telling you to do that part. I'm telling you, you stand and be faithful to the standard. Don't you go down to where they are in a life of compromise. You make them come to you. Now, the challenge of doing that is, number one, the, uh, the bravery and the power that it takes to do that, and the Holy Spirit provides us with that, but then also to do it in a loving way and to do it in a non-proud or non-condescending way, but to say, this is what the Bible says, this is what I understand, this is what I'm supposed to do in this situation, and I'm going to do that in this situation. Here is why, and I am not moving. And what I'm doing is I'm putting myself under the authority of God. This is not me making a decision. This is not me liking you or not liking you. This isn't personal even. This is about me pleasing God, the God that I'm going to stand before in one day. Do you do not go to them when it requires compromise. You stand and they come to you. Now, you live in the same world that I, I live in. You live in the same body of Christ and all the movement that, that's going on in, in the body of Christ professing Christianity in the United States of America and how much compromise is being accepted and so forth. And if this, I'm sure it is our portion already, but if it isn't, it's going to be our portion. We will become if I understand the Bible correctly, people like Jeremiah will become the minority, not the majority, in the last days. You take the last four letters of, the, of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and uh, the final four, he speaks to them of his return. So it causes Bible scholars to look at that and say, these will be the four dominant forms and expressions of Christianity in the world in the last days. And three of them are not very good. Uh, the church of Laodicea is going like gangbusters. They can't even fit any more people in there as, as a church that's typical of the very last of the age. And the church of Philadelphia, the church that is faithful to God's Word, God speaks to them and says, you are of little stature. They weren't big, but they were powerful. 
because they were on the right side of God. So this is something that is uh, very important for us uh, to, uh, you know, to understand today. We don't move into the area of compromise, and if the pressure is to do it with our kids when we're raising them and then when they're grown and to do with all other adult relationships in our life as well, we stand and uh, uh, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. I always think about a story that I uh, read years ago uh, in this vein. There's a very famous uh, Hollywood uh, uh, actress who was, um, you know, involved in homosexuality and all, and her mother was a very, very strong born-again Christian. And this actress uh, came to her mother, and this is all in an article that she, interview that she gave, and she spoke to her mother and said, why won't you accept my homosexuality? And her mother said to her, why won't you respect my personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And so there's the need to make the stand and then pray like crazy and trust the Holy Spirit to use the obedience to your obedience to impact a life. It doesn't mean there isn't, isn't contact with that person, but it means that we do not compromise in uh, maintaining uh, that relationship on the level that we're able to. And then the Lord gives this um, uh, promise uh, to Jeremiah in the midst of all of this, reminds him basically, excuse me, basically reminds him of the promise that he had given to Jeremiah at the very beginning of his public ministry that he would protect him. And I will make you, this, I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. Uh, fortified is a pretty good wall all by itself, uh, a bronze wall in those days. Uh, wow. And they will fight against you, rats, uh, so the promises of God don't go, uh, in the world you will have tribulation. So they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. And the Lord is just saying, all right, I got these things worked out with you, Jeremiah, now, and now I'm going to let you know once again, I'm not going anywhere. I am with you, and I'm going to take care of you, just like I said. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Now we come into uh, uh, chapter 16, and uh, some of this, uh, again, the message of judgment is very, very strong. Important, I think, at this point to be reminded of the fact that it wasn't just as bad, it would have been bad enough if the southern kingdom of Judah, God's people, were disobeying God, um, and it was like on, an, and God was able to look at it as like on an individual basis, and so, okay, I don't want to live for God right now, I'm going to live for idols, and I'm going to disobey, and I'm going to live for sexual immorality, and so forth, all the things that they were doing in, in that day, um, and, and then just, just say, well, okay, they're just not obeying. The problem is, is that God's plan of salvation for the whole world, including you and me in this room, was attached to those people. This just wasn't about them and their sin and their rebellion against God. God had prophesied that he would bring a Savior into the world through the children of Israel and specifically through the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself. So their view has become so small of the impact of who they are as God's people in human history, and they just think this is about whether I'm going to obey God or not. And God is saying, on the path, on the track that you're on, I'm not going to have a people left to fulfill my promise to bring a Savior into the world through, and so I'm going to play hardball with you. And uh, the picture's a lot bigger than what you realize it to be. And so his judgment was strong because the stakes were strong. Aren't you glad that God won in this battle of wills 
between the southern kingdom of Judah and God, because we were able then, some hundreds of years later, to have Jesus born into the world that we might enjoy the relationship with God and the quality of life that we enjoy as a result. It was vital that God won in this uh, battle of wills uh, between uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and himself. And the word of the Lord also came to me, saying, you shall not take a wife, and nor shall you have sons uh, or daughters in this place. Now listen, his ministry is hard enough, isn't it? I mean, if anybody needed a helpmate and some company and some encouragement, you would think that it would have been Jeremiah, right? At, unless it was like Job's wife. Um, but she's already out of circulation. Um, but it would have been nice to experience marriage, to experience having children and so forth. And the Lord says, no, I don't want you to marry, and I don't want you to have children. And so he calls him to a life of celibacy. And God does that in some people's lives even uh, today. And, and so the Lord speaks to him on this. And the interesting thing about it is now he's going to have Jeremiah dramatize uh, something that's going to get the attention of the southern kingdom of Judah. Because among uh, the Jewish people in those days, you were expected as a, a Jewish male to marry by the age of 20. And usually that marriage had been arranged uh, long before you turned 20, but never past 20 uh, you, were, you were to marry. And if you did not marry, you would be looked upon uh, suspiciously by the rabbis and the Jewish religious leaders as someone who didn't, ha didn't take God seriously because one of the earliest commands that God gave in, in the Bible was that, they, that uh, man was to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, they viewed marriage as a command from God and procreation as a command from God. And so here is Jeremiah. He's going to go way past 20 and uh, way, way until older years, and he is not going to marry. What that would have done is, in that culture, we don't think anything about it today, who's married, who's not married, when they marry, or whatever, but in those days, he would have been like a neon light. He would have been such an oddity, and everybody would have been coming up to him and saying, why in the world are you not married? And then he would be given the opportunity to speak the message and reply to that question that he would have been asked many, many times, for thus says the Lord, according to the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths and they shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse, garbage on the face of the earth, unburied, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the uh, earth. They will end up eating them. So somebody asked him, why in the world are you not married? He gives him this answer, and the guy says, sorry, I asked. Um, <laughs> Uh, not really. His eyes would get as big as Marty Feldman's eyes, and, and it would boom. He's hit with that message. So all of it was designed to, to deliver the message. Then the Lord went on, and he said to Jeremiah, uh, do not enter the house of mourning. Don't go uh, to uh, funerals, especially uh, specifically funerals that were uh, going to be involved with people dying as a result of God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, nor go to lament or bemoan their deaths, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land, and they shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, 
cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. These were pagan expressions of uh, grief that had made their place into, uh, contrary to Scripture, was forbidden, had made their way into the mainstream of Jewish uh, culture at that time. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them. In those days, if a family lost a, a, a loved one, then all of the neighbors, much like today, would bring a meal over and so forth, and they would lament the death of, uh, of the person. He said, nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead, uh, nor shall men give them uh, the cup of consolation uh, to try and console them to drink for their father or their mother. And so he, God says to Jeremiah, I don't want you to attend the funerals of people who die here as a result of their disobedience to me and as a result of my judgment. I do not want you to send mixed messages because if you go in and you lament their death when their death was because they refused to obey me, then it will look like you're against me in terms of the judgment that's being meted out. Your life has to be consistent with the message that uh, you are, you are uh, uh, speaking to them. He goes further than to talk about weddings in the same vein. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting uh, to sit with them to uh, eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and, and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So here's another way. He doesn't marry. He doesn't have children. He doesn't go to funerals and he doesn't go to weddings. That's going to get people's attention. Why in the world don't you go to people's funerals? Why in the world don't you go to weddings? And each time the question is asked, he is then able to speak to them about this death has occurred because of, uh, of uh, disobedience to God's Word. And then when they talk about why don't you attend any weddings, everybody attends weddings. You get invited to these weddings and then to use it as an opportunity to say, all of the mirth, all of the joy of weddings are one day going to be removed from the land. I mean, God is, it, it, uh, you know, He's doing things to uh, provoke questions in people's lives, to give Jeremiah an opportunity to speak to them on every ever, uh, level of life of coming judgment and the need to repent in order to uh, avoid it. And it, uh, it shall be that when you show this people these words, and that word show is interesting because, again, what he's doing here, he's not really saying uh, these words, he's showing them. And, and so not marrying, not having children, not attending funerals, not going to weddings, he is, the message is taking the form of a show, a form of uh, demonstrating it. And so it shall be when you show these, uh, this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin uh, that we have committed against the Lord our God? And so they ask Jeremiah about why he's not getting married and why he's not attending the funerals, why he's not attending uh, the marriages and uh, weddings and and then he declares these things, and then their response here uh, to Jeremiah is, why does the Lord want to judge us? Why is he, you know, pronouncing all of this uh, disaster uh, 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 upon us? And that's uh, their reaction. And they then begin to kind of, um, uh, they, uh, they blame shift, essentially. What do we do? that God's going to do all of these kind of things to us. And they start to shift blame and to make it seem as if there's something wrong with God in his judgment rather than wrong with them. Here's another rampant kind of idea in uh, people's minds today. And so uh, the blame shifting of all of it, very, very common, of course, in the backslider. And as soon as the backslider starts to bear the consequences of his backsliding, of her backsliding, and then uh, they, and they get 
you know, then the first thing that so often a person wants to do is, why is God doing this to me and God is being unfair and so forth? And God tells Jeremiah, when they do this blame shift, you just confront them bluntly with the real reason uh, for it. Uh, Verse 11, it's their own sin. And thus you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And uh, so this blame shifting, I mean, none of us know anything about that, do we? When uh, our parents were little kids and they put the, and the Oreo cookies are all over your mouth and the chocolate milk is up over your nose that you drank out of the carton and you weren't supposed to drink it at all. And uh, it was my twin brother, or it was whoever it might be. So the blame shifting that goes on when we get confronted with our sin. The interesting thing is, it is such a first reaction on so many of our parts. And it's as old as the Garden of Eden. So we get busted. Yeah, yeah, who, who left the rake there? If that hadn't hit me in the face, I'd have never sworn like a sailor like I did in front of the whole neighborhood. So it's always somebody else's fault, right? And so here is Adam and Eve. They sin in the Garden of Eden, and God confronts Adam concerning his sin, and Adam says, it's the woman you gave me. In one sentence, he separates himself by two people from responsibility for what happened. It was her fault. And Lord, if you don't mind me observing, part of the responsibility is on you because you provided her to me. Now, I know you two got some things to work out here. You go over and do that. I'll be right over here waiting for you to put her in her place. And then if there's some kind of an award I get, uh, you know, for… And so the blame shifting, first reaction so often… And the nice, I don't, know how, I don't know how well you have done uh, in the excuse department and offering them to God in blame shifting, I'm, I'm batting zero uh, so far on that. And it's the love of God that He does not let us do that. You know, it's just like, oh, maybe they had only and then I convince myself, all right, okay, yeah. Man, that's right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And it gets a little quiet. Now, I might not be right there. And the Lord brings in his conviction. I mean, you always lose that battle. And that is an important battle for us to lose. And so he said, you have done even worse than your father's. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart, uh, so that no one listens to me. Nobody was obeying God's Word because they're too busy following uh, the desires of their flesh. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land uh, that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, uh, where uh, I will not show you favor." And so again, here is God saying, I'm going to send you to Babylon, and you like idols? Do you like idols? You like idols? I can tell you like idols. You don't like my word, but you love idols. I will send you to idolatry central. I will send you to Babylon where there are more idols than you could ever dream exist. And you'll not only get to worship idols, whatever you want to worship other than me, to your heart's content. But then you get to see the kind of nation and society and person that gets fashioned by those idols, and I have a sneaking suspicion it will cure you of your backsliding. And it did. And it did. Uh, Israel would have a lot of other problems in the rest of their history, but, and still do. But in coming back to the land after the Babylonian captivity, idolatry is not one of them. And therefore, he said, Uh, Therefore, behold, verse 14, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, the great exodus of the Pentateuch. 
But here's what will be, take the place of, of the joy of all of that. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from the lands where he had driven them, for I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. And so the Lord here promises to restore the Jews uh, back into Israel after they've uh, you know, paid the price for uh, their sin and, and borne the judgment, uh, judgment for it. And so you think, wow, what could be greater in is, uh, Jewish history than the exodus out of, uh, out of uh, uh, um, uh, Egypt? But here he says, my delivering you out of uh, the, the, uh, the bondage in Babylon is an even greater miracle. Uh, remember, when they went into uh, the bondage of Egypt, that didn't begin as a judgment of God. Uh, that began as uh, Jacob and his family finding a place of refuge uh, to incubate. Uh, here they are, a very small uh, group of people, 430, something like this, as, as you would take the patriarchs and all their families and so forth coming in, uh, into Egypt, and God is going to give them the promised land. Well, they're just a family. They're just a tribe. They can't take over the promised land. So they needed to go from becoming merely a tribe to becoming a nation, and God put them in the incubator of Egypt for that to happen, and then it came a time where they needed to get out and, and the promised land and, and so forth, and God did the ten plagues, and He accomplished that. But here, they're in a far worse state. They've gone into Babylonian captivity because of their own idolatry and wickedness, and they've been decimated as a result and all. It was a miracle of God's grace uh, that, uh, that this was going to happen, and God lets them know that in the midst of, uh, of the, the, the judgment that was going on, that there will be a, a happy ending here uh, for them uh, ultimately after their uh, chastisement, after their uh, uh, discipline. And uh, it is very important to note how often God uh, jumps into these passages and uh, talks to the, them, even when they're still backslidden. He knows a day's going to come where they're going to turn away from it. And, and for all of their backsliding, God never lost sight of them. He never gave up on them. And, uh, and when they were ready to turn, then God was ready to meet them once again in in grace and continue his plan uh, through, uh, through their lives. I like, again, the, the Christian bar of soap found there in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that confession means repentance. The word confess, I've mentioned it before, but it means to see my sin the way that God does. It isn't just, oh yeah, God, I'm sorry I ran over that person and, uh, and, and helped me. And, oh, and I'm sorry that it made me late for work. And, but it is to actually see my sin in the way that God sees it, which means there's going to be godly sorrow that works repentance in our lives. And so that with that, there's an immediate for us as Christians, the blood of Christ. How many of us are thankful for the covenant that we're under in the New Testament? There's an immediate restoration of relationship with God when we turn back to Him, confess our sin. It doesn't mean that all of the consequences of our backsliding are taken away. Sometimes we have to still work through those consequences because it will build character in our lives that will help us not to fall back into that uh, area of sin uh, again. I really love, you know, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, concerning what I read here in Jeremiah. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, which is acceptable to God, and is your reasonable uh, service. And then he went on in verse 2 and says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And how I, how I like to view it as a visual in my own life is no matter how, none of us can change our past. We can't change our past. I can't change this afternoon. 
I can deal with it in a godly way if I've messed up in it or whatever, but I can't make that not happen. And none of us can do that about our lives. So the past is the past. And the past for some of us can bury us in terms of hope. Does God care about I know He loves me. I take it by faith that he, He's got grace for me. But does He still have a plan for my life? And Paul teaches us, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that there is right in front of every single one of us tonight in this room, no matter what our past, no matter what our failures, that right in front of us there is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God to walk in. And that infuses such wonderful and needed hope into our lives when we return from a backslide, whether that might be in our heart for five minutes or whether it might be five years to where you became unrecognizable even to your family, that when I do come back, it's not the end of God having anything to do with me. My life will be useless. I'll be in the doghouse or with one of those dunce caps in the corner of the fellowship hall. No, God knows where we are, and He has a good and an acceptable and a perfect will out in front of us. Uh, and I, I think that is a wonderful truth for uh, breathing needed hope uh, in, in just that kind uh, of a situation. But then because of what, you know, is going on with Judah, they're not repenting here. God has to return to the message of judgment. And he said, behold, I will send for many fishermen. And he's talking here about the Babylonians coming in and invading the land. And, uh, and they're going to come in and they're going to uh, essentially uh, wipe out Israel in the same way that a fisherman come in and wipe out a pond of all of the fish. And so I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they will f uh, shall fish them. Uh, and then whatever fish get away, he changes his imagery, and uh, then I will send uh, for many hunters to hunt them down, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every rock and out of the holes of the rocks. In other words, nobody's going uh, to escape. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes, and first I will repay double. Let me go back to this. There, uh, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. Well, wait a second. I might. <laughs> no, we'll go to 18. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land and they have defiled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. And the idea is that when they get wiped out by the Babylonians, all of their idols are going to be in a heap uh, right next to them, uh, a mute testimony to their inability to have helped uh, the, the uh, people of Judah. And so uh, the Lord uh, responded to the fact that uh, there would be the repayment uh, of, of double uh, for their sin. You notice in verse 18, God talks about the land being my land. He talks about the land being uh, it, it, uh, his inheritance. It belonged to him. Why, would he, why did he give them a, a double uh, a, a judgment? Because they knew better. They knew better. And there is an important principle in um, the Scriptures that uh, talks about the fact that Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And so there is a greater responsibility for privilege. These people had privilege in ways that the Philistines never had, the Amorites never had, the Ammonites never had. They had the Word of God. They had the law of God. They had so many blessings and advantages. And so for them to go into the idolatry and sin in the way that they did was far worse than having the Philistines do uh, the same thing. So he gives them a double judgment so that that, that the, the point that you can't do that is, is driven even more deeply uh, into their heart. And then 
uh, Jeremiah uh, prays then to the Lord, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day uh, of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, uh, worthlessness, and uh, unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? And Jeremiah here is seeing prophetically, seeing essentially uh, the kingdom uh, age as he uh, uh, cries out to the fact that the day is going to come in which, uh, you know, even the Gentiles are going to come uh, here in the land. They're going to worship the Lord, not only the Jews and, and, uh, and so forth. And so, uh, speaking about uh, the kingdom age, when Jesus will rule the, the world for that thousand-year reign, a thousand-year reign of Christ following this, uh, his uh, second coming, uh, in, in the battle of, of Armageddon where it says concerning Jesus in Psalm 2, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He will, uh, right, he will reign in righteousness and rule in righteousness uh, for that thousand uh, years. Gentiles will be the beneficiaries of it also. And then God's response to Jeremiah's prayer, verse 21, therefore behold, uh, I will uh, this once cause them to know, and I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And so the Lord responded to Jeremiah's uh, prayer of faith by just assuring him that the Jews would uh, and also come to know uh, his power and his might when he brings the judgment upon them and then, uh, and then ultimately and subsequently uh, restores them uh, to the land, then they will uh, come to know the real significance of uh, the God's name, uh, Yahweh. They will respect him in the way that he is worthy of respect. And that day is coming uh, for the whole world. That kingdom age is going to be something. We'll stop there uh, tonight and pick things up in chapter 17 uh, next week. I don't even want to go into it uh, two or three verses because it's too rich to try and uh, hurry through. So if the worship team would come forward, um, we'll spend a few minutes just allow it, worshiping the Lord once again. Isn't he a great God? I mean, he's just wonderful. We love him so much. And the chance just to worship him. And then anything that he's kind of spoken to us before we go get the kiddos or before we go to get our cars or talk to one another, and if there's something God has spoken to us tonight, maybe about making that stand and not caving, and whatever it might be, to kind of work that out between us and the Lord, settle that. It's a conversation, right? Well, I don't mean work it out like, okay, all right, I'm everything. you know, you got me, you won, and, and uh, you're bigger than I, and, and uh, it's always an unfair fight, but it's, instead of a thing, and Lord, I heard you, and I, and I see how that relates to my life right now, and... Um, I, 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 let's continue that conversation right now so I can have that part of my life in place the way that you want it to be. So uh, let's worship the Lord.